Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Oki. Yes, the show is back. And for our first episode after the long hiatus, we're sharing my conversation with Amanda Asheim. In this episode, we learn how she was drawn to study theology, and in particular, ecclesiology, or the study of the church. In light of that, we talked extensively about the concept of synodality, what's happening with the synod on synodality, and some of the questions people have about it. With the return of the podcast, I am relaunching its Patreon page, which you can find at patreon.com slash dailytheopod. All patrons of the podcast receive bonus episodes, as well as the consolation that comes from being helpful. At higher tiers, patrons will be publicly thanked in episodes and on social media, and possibly even receive handwritten thank you notes from yours truly. Your financial support not only helps me produce and publish these episodes, but it also makes it possible for me to create transcripts for each episode. So if you'd like to support the show with a little coin, the link again is patreon.com slash dailytheopod. Thanks for coming back to the show, and thanks, as always, for listening. Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Amanda Osheim. Amanda, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. This is our first episode back after a several-year hiatus, and I don't know a better person I could have started back with. I like to open, as best I recall from years past, asking people, how did you get into theology? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot, in part because at Loris College, where I work, we think about vocation. And so we sometimes talk about tell your vocation relationship story. So I was dating someone else when I met theology. I had been (laughs) interested in being an international studies major and studying politics. And I was at University of St. Thomas in the Twin Cities. So I'd taken my first required theology course, which is like the Death March Through Christian History, which, you know, yields probably very few interest in theology majors through that. But my sophomore year, I was taking my second theology course, which was on moral theology. And at the same time, I'd started a work-study position in campus ministry in liturgy. I was a liturgical assistant. And all these light bulbs just started going off in between what I was learning about the liturgy and being part of the campus ministry community and working with them, and then what I was learning in the classroom. So I was started to get very excited about learning theology and kept racking up courses. And it kind of came to a head. I hadn't, you know, so I was like, had my eye on this other discipline, even though I was still an international studies major. And I was at the point of, I'd been accepted to transfer out to Georgetown in international Mm. studies at the end of my sophomore year. And I needed to make the choice about what I wanted to do. And I remember standing in the kitchen of the crappy little summer apartment I had up in the Twin Cities and thinking, I think I'm going to stay here and be a Catholic studies major. Yeah, Mm. that conversation went well with mom and dad. They were... (laughs) (laughs) really not on board with that for a while. I think they just couldn't understand why it was taking what seemed to them, you know, a huge turn. Was that fear on their part, like a career fear, like you being able to provide for yourself or was it something else? I certainly think it was a career fear because at that point I wasn't, 
I'd had professors who told me that I was capable of graduate study, but that wasn't really on my personal radar. I was mm-hmm. thinking more along the lines of, of ministry. And I think my folks thought in good ways, they saw lots of talents in me and they didn't realize all that goes into being a good lay ecclesial minister at the time. And so they, they didn't think that that was sort of a, you know, a life that was going to ask the most it could of me or that I could give mm-hmm. my own self to. Okay. And I think for my mom, it was a bit difficult because they had an ecumenical marriage. My mom was Roman Catholic, is still Roman Catholic. My dad was ELCA Lutheran. And so they grew up and in their marriage, they you know, were married shortly after Vatican II. So they were riding kind of those ecumenical waves in which there was still a lot of mistrust sometimes in between Mm -hmm. the the different traditions, even as in between the churches and theologically, there's all this dialogue going on. And I think mom, her first reaction was that if she had raised me more Catholic, if she had given (laughs) me more faith formation along the way than, than what I'd had, that I wouldn't have this need as a young adult to go and explore these questions, that those things would already have been kind of answered or addressed for me. So, you know, in good Catholic style, she had some, some guilt for that perhaps. (laughs) And that settled out for them though. So at some point after graduation, that settled out for them as I got a job in a parish for a year and then went back to work in campus ministry at St. Thomas. I think they started to see through my experiences and what I was sharing mm-hmm. with them, what I was interested in. And then as I was back working at St. Thomas as a full-time campus minister, I had tuition remission. So, and I was thinking more about graduate school at that point. And I had some interest in psychology. So I took a psychology class on family systems And, you know, it was interesting. I thought it was interesting. So I was like, okay, that's a possibility. And then the very next class I took was an ecclesiology course. I was like, oh, that's the stuff right there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm home, baby. I really would have thought it would have been moral theology for me. I had no idea what systematic theology was all about. But yeah, that's Mm -hmm. that's when I, I knew that that was the direction I wanted to go in. And so I was a part-time master's student and full-time campus minister. And as I was getting to the end of my master's program, my professors were telling me, you have the ability to go on for doctoral study. And there weren't very many others in my program who were doing that. Most were Mm -hmm. being trained for the priesthood or for local ministry. And so I started looking around at doctoral programs to see where I might go. So that was its own kind of adventure along the way. But that's the, the story of how I ended up Breaking up with international studies. And... <laughs> Do you ever look back longingly at international studies and think what might have been? You know, I did at one point, And this was, I do recall being out in Washington, D.C. for a campus ministry conference. I'd actually gone to the wrong conference. There's the, there's the Catholic Campus Ministry Association, mm-hmm. which would have been a perfectly great conference for me to go to. But then there was the something like the National Directors of Catholic Campus Ministries Conference. And my boss had been invited to that. He was a priest. And he didn't want to go to the conference, so he passed it along to me. <laughs> and so I went out, you know, staying at this place in, in Georgetown and 
in the hotel and walked into this conference center, which was not a ballroom as I anticipated, mm-hmm. but was rather a fairly small room. And there were only <laughs> like 10 people there. <laughs> so I was sitting looking around me like, I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> <laughs> But they were very warm and generous people, and they let me stay and hang around with them. And I learned a lot from that conference. But while I was there and thinking about Georgetown, I was like, oh, you know, what if I had been an international studies major? What if I, you know, what if this theology thing isn't the right one for me? So I did, while I was there, meet with someone from Georgetown from the international studies program. And... You know, they were very, I think I was very clear that I was just sort of feeling it out and they maybe didn't mm-hmm. have a whole lot of time for listening to me trying to, to feel it out. And so theology <laughs> ended up being the right place. You know, the scorned, yeah. scorned lover, it's hard to go back. Yeah, understandable. <laughs> when you had professors in your master's program saying, you know, you could do further graduate study, you could go on for this. Did they, this is, I guess, just a present question I have now. Did they at all say you know, any of the sort of caveats of doing graduate work, of going into academia, of, you know, there's no jobs, like that kind of thing. I'm just curious. All the things I tell my students now, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No. Undergrad, one of my primary mentors undergrad told me that if I did a master's program or a doctoral program, I needed to get it paid for. And at Mm -hmm. that time, it was so far in the future, but I was also like, they'll pay you to study things? What? What is, that's impossible. You must be lying to me. And so I had that in the back of my mind. And I was doing that in my master's program with a tuition remission. That was amazing, that benefit. But no, the, the professors who were guiding me didn't have, I think, I don't think they maybe knew what the larger job situation Mm -hmm. was looking like. The first glimpse I got of it was when I was, I'd gone to Notre Dame to visit their program Mm -hmm. and had a conversation with Matt Ashley, who was the director of graduate studies at the time. And he was talking about why Notre Dame it's competitive for a number of reasons to get into, but he said in part because we we want to have a certain size cohort because we want to be able to fully fund everyone who mm-hmm. comes here. And we don't want there to be competition amongst our students for those different positions, but rather to have that community in between people. And then he said on the other side, there are, you know, there's not a guarantee that there are a lot of jobs on the other side. But by the time I'd been accepted into Boston College and decided to go there, I I had no idea what I was just a fool in love with theology and I had <laughs> no thought that it was going to be difficult to find jobs on the other side. Which, you know, was amusing because I was graduating in 2010 and, you know, mm-hmm. 2008, there were some things happening in the economy that maybe I should have been more aware of at the time. So a lot of it's just pure dumb luck on my part is what I've come to see, or the grace of God, if I look at it from a supernatural perspective. I remember, I think maybe I graduated college in 2003. And I think like end of 2001, beginning of 2002, I was in a sort of cohort of people who were thinking about going on for graduate school in theology. And they, the department, to their credit, they had a session for us that was, you know, a lot of nuts and bolts mechanics and, you know, what you should do and things like try to go to places where there's funding and all that sort of thing. And they did give us stats on in different fields, how many people were coming out of programs and how many jobs there were. 
in the time. And again, this is early 2000s. It was like, you know, 10 to one or 12 to one for a lot of jobs. And I do not remember that frightening me or <laughs> dissuading me or anything. And I wonder about this because I, I don't know that anything would have, you know, convinced me, oh, this is maybe not a good plan <laughs> long-term or financially. And so I think about that a lot when I talk to, especially people finishing master's programs, mm-hmm. you know, at my school or other institutions is that like, I, I will give them as real a picture as I can. But I also know that if someone really wants to do it, I can't talk them out of it. I think I've also sort of come around on this. As long as I am honest with them that tenure track jobs don't exist much anymore. The other side of it is like you were saying, if someone's going to pay you for five years to just read and study and think about things you want to think about, Mm -hmm. and then, and then you do something else at the end of that, that's not bad. That's a pretty good way to spend, you know, five years or so. Mm -hmm. I feel like maybe both you and I were in this sort of window of when we were looking at jobs, there were still some jobs, there Mm -hmm. was still competition, there were still, you know, a decent number of postings in a year. And it's so much thinner now that I think people have a maybe more realistic picture of it. I, I think know. so too. But I, you know, I feel for the students because it's hard, I think, for many of them to imagine part of their draw to it is that what they see their professors doing and what mm-hmm. they, they think life is going to be like. But you know, being a faculty member has involved a whole lot less time sipping brandy in libraries than I thought it was going <laughs> to in the end. <laughs> really thought that was going to spend more of my time, but no. So yeah, helping them to even think about what would it be on the other side. I mean, it might go in a completely different, you might have a doctorate in theology and go in a completely different direction. I do hope that there can be some ways in which that higher education isn't the end for doctoral studies. And there are clearly masters in divinity and demon programs that are leading people into doing more pastoral work. But I do think, too, that those those doctorates in theology can also be be helpful on the ecclesial side. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to see some more bridges coming across that way so that good students have a place to go afterwards and have a place to contribute what they understand yeah. to the local church. Because we, we just we need folks who understand theology well. And it seems like we've got a little bit of a dearth of that going on in some places. <laughs> But no shortage of uh, opinions. No so. shortage of opinions. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So if your life as a professor is less brandy sniffing than you were hoping, what is something like a typical day or a typical week for you as a theology professor? So my situation is just slightly different because I've got a lighter teaching load because I have an administrative component mm-hmm. to my job. And so I'd say that... You know, there's a chunk of always kind of churning in the back of my head is what needs to happen for classes. And so okay. what needs to happen in terms of prep. And of course, the glory of being a bit further on in your career is that you've got a bit better sense of what needs to happen each day and and what's worked in the classroom before and what doesn't. But I need to usually go back and kind of refresh my memory about those texts and kind of enter into them again so that mm-hmm. I can be a more hopefully dynamic presence in the classroom and and help to lead discussion and and help that to go in good places. So prep continues to take up a chunk of time. Probably not as much time as I should is given over to grading. That's what I was also percolating <laughs> in the back of my mind constantly and that I am generally avoiding. The only other thing I'm avoiding just as much as grading is looking at my email inbox to see mm. what all I'm being asked to do there. There's, you know, committee work to help the college continue to, to run and function. I have 
loved about Loris as a smaller school that very early on you get opportunities to understand not just how your program operates, but how the college as a whole operates Mm -hmm. and to at a place that has not all the money in the world, but room for taking initiative and to develop things to have some of the freedom and creativity for that is is really great. But that can be time consuming in its own way. And that can be everything from I was chair of the general education curriculum task force that revised our gen ed, which was, you know, it's a whole behemoth thing mm-hmm. to working with some others from around the state of Iowa to develop sort of a mini collegium, which is a chance for our Iowan faculty members at Catholic colleges and universities to come together and try to learn a little bit more about Catholic intellectual tradition, a little bit of an appetizer for them around those things. So it can vary a lot. There are some things that tie in explicitly with my discipline. And there's a whole lot of things that do not tie in explicitly with my discipline, but it's just about being a good member of the college, a good citizen yeah. of the college. So it's those things that kind of surprisingly take up a, a lot of time. They're not all, you know, some of them are more rewarding than others, but a lot of them are, are kind of necessary to get things mm-hmm. to, to keep ticking through. All right. So you have two main hats that you're wearing, right? So one is... Currently, you're an associate professor. I hear there's there's news on that front. There is news on that front. I just found out in the past month that I'm promoted to full professor starting with next fall. Well deserved. Thank you. All right. So you are an associate, soon to be full professor. Mm-hmm. And then you are also, you're an administrator and it's the Catholic Thinkers and Leaders Program. Is that mm-hmm. what it's called? The Bright okay. Catholic Thinkers and Leaders Program. And so... I know you have committees and meetings and a bazillion emails and everything else, but like, what, what does that mean for you as an administrator? What's that program doing? What's, what's the goal there? So the program has 60 students overall. We interview and bring in 15 each year as cohorts to go through and to learn more about the Catholic intellectual tradition and how to live that out. And we think a lot along the lines of the quote from the Presbyterian minister, Friedrich Buechner, about vocation being the place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. Mm-hmm. So we work a lot with students on developing their sense of their call as Catholics to participate in the divine life of God, to build the kingdom of God, to learn what their own particular talents are and where their passions are, while at the same time helping them to learn about and encounter and critically reflect on the larger world around them and and how they can be of service to it. So that involves some coursework that they take together as they go through. And I'm sometimes the teacher for that. So I teach all the first years in the fall and the spring. But then for instance, in the sophomore year, we have sophomore formation nights where we're doing, we do an urban immersion with them, usually in Chicago. We haven't been able to do that the past few years, but we're looking forward Mm -hmm. to going back to Chicago for an urban immersion at a place that really helps us to examine justice issues and how communities are responding to those and collaborating with others. And then we're encouraging those students when we're back in Dubuque to start establishing partnerships with communities around Dubuque area to just learn more, to understand more, and to get a bit out of the habit of, a lot of the students have experienced service in high school, and they understand at some level that service is a good thing. But it's so much of it is categorized in terms of hours for them. Like, you know, it's more like Mm -hmm. a checkbox. Here are the things I have to do. And we're trying to get them to shift over into service as a habit. Service is just a part of the life that you lead. Community connections is being part of the life that you lead. 
Okay. And along with that, there's then attentiveness just to where students are in their growth and development. We have a wonderful spiritual life office on campus, so we don't have to recreate all the elements of a campus ministry, mm-hmm. but we're working to help students kind of continue to develop intellectually in their interrelational talents, in their spirituality, for sure, in their emotional lives as well. And they're, they're a great group to, to work with and to come to know. It's, it's such a blessing. And I am deeply grateful that I have a, a partner in that work whose name is Colleen Cool. Shout out to Colleen. Colleen is the leadership coordinator. And so between the, the two of us, we're often just kind of keeping track of where things are for different students and what needs to be put in place, what the next different event is going to be that draws us together and how things are going. And I'd say that part of that is, it's not that I get to be like necessarily close with all of the students, but we try to emphasize to all the students that both Colleen and I are resources to them as they go through college. And so we've come to see like we just have in general more of what a lot of our students are facing in terms of how they're working through mental health challenges or anxieties or how they're kind of having to learn how to connect with other people well after the pandemic so i think we've got a great opportunity to work with them on that but that takes its that takes its own time and to develop those relationships of trust along the way so that's part of what I really love about it is that it's, I get to be a professor, but there's still part of it that's a bit like my campus ministry days mm-hmm. and really getting to, to know students and to get to see them grow over those four years is, yeah. is really cool. That sounds really neat. Yeah, it is. Does it, I don't know, does it feel like being an administrator? Do you like that piece of it of running a program and, you know, the things that go along with that? No, I do like that piece of it. And I like, you know, I have some, I have some skills in that area, some organizational and communication skills and some strategic thinking abilities along those lines to envision what might need to happen. The program was not one I created, but it's one I stepped into and it had a great Mm -hmm. structure. So that kind of plays to this part of me that, likes to take something that's already good and say, okay, how can we max this out? How can we make this even better than what it is? So all of that has been really rewarding, you know, doing some of the nitty gritty stuff, like figuring out the budget and all that sort of stuff is not my (laughs) cup of tea. I don't think I'm the person who would, at least at this stage in my career, I'm not real interested in having a higher administrative load than that. I like the balance in between having both some administration and some teaching. I think that keeps me fairly grounded, even though sometimes I feel kind of pulled in between the two. Yeah. Yeah. I will say when I was looking at doctoral programs, you were at the time that I was looking the grad student assistant or Uh or something like that at Boston College. And I went to, I think, three different universities to look at their programs and I counted them all ahead of time. And Boston colleges was hands down the most organized. (laughs) And when I arrived, like you were there, you had a folder for me. You had an agenda. There was a student I was going to lunch with. There were a couple of faculty I was going to have meetings with. Like I I think I got a tour from somebody and like the other places I went, it was very haphazard. (laughs) (laughs) And it was there were a lot of reasons I, I chose BC, but one of them was, you know, clearly 
somebody has it together and that someone was you. Uh- <laughs> that was me again, inheriting a great system and just trying to keep it going from, from Catherine get assaulted. Yeah. But yeah, and, and I loved exactly that. It was a fantastic opportunity to get to meet new people. I knew how kind of freaked out I was about visiting these different programs and probably those earlier edges of imposter syndrome coming through. Like, do I really belong Mm -hmm. here? I remember when I visited BC and Lisa Cahill was the grad director at that point. Mm. So I had a conversation with Lisa and Lisa asked me, well, why are you interested in doctoral studies? Which is a fine question to ask, except that I didn't realize that Lisa's listening intently face is also sort of her critically examine a bug face. (laughs) (laughs) And so I thought she was, you know, I thought she was being sort of standoffish with me. Like, why do you want to do doctoral studies? Mm Which was not the case at all. She's yeah. she's a wonderful woman. It was more about me and my my feeling like, oh, do I really belong here? Is this going to work? I think they yeah. had to go and get Fred Lawrence out of the parking garage because he, <laughs> he didn't realize he was supposed to meet with me, which was so typically Fred. This is yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there's truth in advertising there and all that. There really is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I want to ask you about your research, but sort of like bleeding into that. I know for me, I have this sort of cliche perennial struggle of balancing wearing all of the hats, you know, and balancing all the plates or whatever, you know, metaphor you want to mix. And for me, I often find that, like you were talking about grading. And one of the things that I find so challenging about grading is that I think of grading like a gas and it will expand to fill the volume. So if I tell myself I have only two hours to get this grading done, I will get it done in two hours. But if I have all day, I will take the whole day or the whole week or however long. Like it just yep. expands. And that's my own, like, that's a problem with my own discipline. Like with, with me and not not like the discipline of theology, but like sure. me as a disciplined person. And I I have found that I was really struck by this book I read a couple of years ago about how to write more. And one of the things it said was, people always talk about finding time for writing, but nobody finds time for teaching. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's on the schedule. There are people in the room. If you don't show up, there's a problem. That mentality really hit for me. And I was real good for like eight months. And then, you know, the pressures of teaching and administrative stuff and committees and everything else sort of took back over. And so I'm curious, you know, do you have strategies or things that you do that work for you and sort of keeping all the things in balance or what are the places that you're still working on or what advice you can give for other theologians or theologians in waiting? (laughs) Theologians in waiting. I like that. So no is the short answer to that. I don't have a real strong sense of, of the balance. I certainly, you know, as a single person who's not raising children, I've got more freedom to be able to spend different hours of the, the day or the weekend or time over the summer. It's usually time over the summer where scholarship happens for me more. Mm-hmm. And it's often going to CTSA in June. That sort of is the, it's the hinge point for me of flipping mm-hmm. out from this academic year to flipping into trying to do my own research and getting excited for that. I think over the past year, I've been trying to learn actually how to put some more breaks on that tendency in myself to just 
keep tackling project after project because I was getting I was getting really burned out with it and overwhelmed mm-hmm. by it and not taking enough time for myself because I think this type of work does exactly what you that gas image works totally well like everything will expand to take the time you allow it and there is always more that could be done and while I'm not a perfectionist the part of me that wants to take something that's good and make it great can get really frazzled over that because I'll either want to, if I can't make it great, then I kind of feel like, oh, well then I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I can kind of short circuit myself. So I've been trying things like over the past year of not looking at my email after seven o'clock at night, which is sometimes mm-hmm. more successful than others, or taking an email Sabbath, as I call it, from, <laughs> from Friday <laughs> afternoon through the end of the day on Saturday, just to have some blocks of time away from it. And I'm not always successful in those little strategies, but they have been helping. And part of what I notice is that when I'm doing them well, then in the times where I have set aside time to work, I work better in those times. Mm -hmm. I'm not sort of constantly trying to build in time for me to both have fun and something of a life and get work done at the same time. I'm not doing as much Netflix is on in the background with something entertaining while I'm trying to answer all these emails Mm -hmm. and having that sort of feeling of I'm not doing any of this well. I'm not actually refreshed and I'm not actually doing this work terribly well. So I'm trying to reestablish or maybe simply establish as the case may be some of these different habits that put some brackets Mm. around academic life so that, yeah, I can be better. I can be more focused in that academic life and I can have a life beyond the academic life too. I'd say with scholarship, I'm often driven by where the opportunities are. So the conference call comes out or Mm -hmm. I think I can, I can put a paper together for that. And that deadline kind of moves me forward or I get an invitation to present on a certain topic or to think about a certain topic. A lot of my recent research with regard to synodality and presentations that have come out of that was because I got what felt to me like a random email from theological studies asking me if I would do kind of a review of recent theology and connected in with synodality. And I said, sure, what's synodality? <laughs> Happily, it turned out that it's a form of ecclesiology that I you know, was very familiar with as I took a little bit more of a look at it just by a different name. So that worked out nicely. But it's often those opportunities that prompt me versus me kind of sitting down and laying out, well, here's my 10-year research agenda. Mm -hmm. I think there's value to that. Like I have longer-term projects that I'm working on, but a lot of my shorter-term projects are more, I don't know, reactive in a way. And that hasn't been bad for me. That's, That's worked out. And I would say to a certain degree, not that I can necessarily, you know, teach the type of scholarship that I write, but there are oftentimes resonances in between what I'm doing in the classroom and what mm-hmm. I end up doing elsewhere. And texts that I've really loved teaching in the classroom year after year, and that continue to challenge me, and that I realize are, are shaping me and my scholarship as well, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, and it's a way that those conversations with students are really, they really are mutual, where it's not just you know, me telling them about a text, but through our discussions, me coming to understand more about the text itself and, and what its implications are. So that's yeah. 
Okay. So you asked a good question and now you get to answer it. What is synodality? <laughs> like this is the big buzz these days. It uh, is the big buzz. I'm glad you're buzz. on. So <laughs> I, I have the loosest understanding of it. So synodality at its root, the word synod means to walk together or to journey together. And it's... On one level, we talk about synods as being structures and events. So there's the synod of bishops, which is a universal structure of the church. And there are smaller synods, also sometimes called councils throughout the church. For instance, if you read the documents of Vatican II, they'll sometimes refer to themselves as the sacred synod. Mm -hmm. So this gathering of church officials. But that doesn't always have to be a universal gathering. Synods have occurred throughout the life of the church on the local level. And there are diocesan synods that can be put together every few years for the local church to come together and to talk about their particular pastoral issues. So synodality, it's an institutional or a synod is an institutional structure. And it's also an event in that sense of that coming together. Mm-hmm. But synodality is more of a way of being church together. It's a way, I think, of reflecting prayerfully and with one another on our faith and how we're living out that faith in the world around us and what those needs of the world are and those different gifts of the world and how we're called forth to respond to them as a church together now. And so I really see it as being more of an an ongoing prayerful process. A lot of, understandably, because Pope Francis is trying to to put this forward in a particular way and get the local churches to start acting in this way. I think there's a lot of sense right now of synods as being events, Mm -hmm. as being, you know, here's this thing we did and now we pass this information along starting at the local level and sending it up to the universal church to see where the universal church talks about and then what may come back down for us in this process of of reception, which is really mutual and dynamic. You need those events, those times to come together. But more deeply than that, I think synodality is a spirituality. And it's a spirituality about how we are together, the people of God and the body of Christ responding to the Holy Spirit in the world today. So that's my quick and dirty explanation of synodality. So one of the questions that I have about synodality is it's clearly a big topic of interest and a topic of concern today in the church. I, at least on Twitter, I see it come up a lot. And I'm curious if you could explain a bit, why is this such a focus now? And also, why is it, what's the controversy or the the concern around it, especially given that at least in my sense of things, a, a lot of previous synods in the Catholic Church since Vatican II have been, to use your language, they've been kind of non-events. Like they mm-hmm. haven't been that big of a deal or generated that much you know, public attention. Part of the reason synodality is so much enforced today, I think, is because of Pope Francis's own ecclesiology and his understanding about the church. And this goes back to the day he was elected and came out of the window of St. Peter's to stand before the crowd in St. Peter's Square. I remember watching that late at night and seeing him. He asked for the blessing of the people of Rome. He asked them to pray for him for their bishop, for the bishop of Rome. And this has been a papal conclave. Most of the people there are thinking about the Pope of the universal church. 
and not about the Pope also being the Bishop of Rome of this local church. And I think that signals something different for Francis, that his understanding of his role of the Pope and in the universal church is because of his relationship to the local. And that when we think about the church, there's been, and Francis uses this analogy, but it's it's not only his, there's been a sense in which for different time periods, we tend to think about the church sort of as a pyramid with you know God at the very top and then the Pope, the bishops, the clergy, religious, and laity down at the bottom. And it's kind of a feudal system of way of thinking about the church. Mm-hmm. I call it like the, the trickle-down method of grace, <laughs> <laughs> the trickle-down economy of grace. And so the people higher up on the, on the triangle are those who are the teachers and who have authority, and those who are lower you know, receive from those who, who come down from on top upper parts of the the pyramid are the teaching church and the lower parts of the pyramid are the learning church. And my take on what Francis is doing is that he wants to try to set up systems, structures, and ways of being church together that emphasize that we are a teaching and learning church all together. And he's not trying to, you know, deny the particular roles of bishops or clergy or religious or lay people. But he is trying to, I think, account for the presence of the Holy Spirit throughout the church. And to say that, to pick up the idea from Vatican II, not only in Vatican II, but reemphasized in Vatican II, that the Holy Spirit is active throughout the church, that the sense of the faithful matters for the church. It isn't just like a, you know, shout out to whatever the magisterium has had to say, like a confirming shout out to that, the sense of the faithful is the life of the church. It's how we're living out our faith. And so if we're not going to consult that life in Cardinal Newman's terms, if we're not going to look to it, then how do we know what the living faith is? How do we know what our tradition ought to be? Certainly we can look to the past, but this is a tradition that lives. And so it lives in the present. So I think this is Francis's own ecclesiology and understanding of the significance of the local church coming to the fore and trying to, he's trying to emphasize ways in which the church can think about that more concretely. And then it's, it's a flipping of the pyramid in a way so that we begin with the synodal processes put into place with the local church to start with the local church and different listening sessions and ways of coming together in prayer and reflection, and then to have those prayers and reflections be passed along, if you will, sort of like back through the hierarchy, so that what the bishops are considering at the Synod of Bishops, together in that universal church structure, isn't simply what they think, but what they have hopefully been formed into thinking about and discussing and praying about by their local churches. So it's not just a universal church that the bishop represents, but that the bishop also represents their local church as well and has been shaped by that local church too. 
And that can sound like a big game of telephone and it can run into to problems of being a big game of telephone where it, you know, the yeah. message starts off one way and has meaning in a certain context and then gets translated along. I think that's part of the role of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of there's a lot of figuring out going on right now about what does it mean to be a synodal church. Yeah. And one of my worries has been that people and one of my worries of thinking about synods as events is that people will think, well, like, oh, yeah, we tried that synod thing a few years ago and nothing really happened with it or I didn't like how it went. So we're not going to do that synod thing anymore. And that's really, really not the the point. Like we try and we come together and we reflect and hopefully we should be learning more and more ways about being this discerning, prayerful church together, to bringing our whole selves to those conversations, mm-hmm. to being willing to speak, as Francis says, with parisia, which is a Greek word from the New Testament. We find it in the Acts of the Apostles, in which the apostles are going out to evangelize with parisia, which means some frankness and boldness. And Francis says, you need to speak with frankness and boldness about how you discern the work of the Holy Spirit at work through your own life and in the world around you, where you're mm-hmm. hearing that call, and to do it without regard for varying levels of church authority within the room, to be able to speak okay. fully to that. And then at the same time, he says, but you've also got to listen with humility. And that humility of saying, I may have something to learn from someone else, even if their discernment of the spirit feels at first greatly different than my own. I need to sit and reflect with that. I need to take that in and to consider it and to consider whether this is a call for a growth and understanding or changing perspective or a different approach than what I've taken in the past. And so what does that mean for us as a, as a whole group? So this is Francis's, I think it's just key to his larger sense of church as field hospital, church as local, the communion of the church arising out of the communion of the local churches. That context matters and experience matters. Why is that controversial? Probably for lots of different reasons. But what I often hear about or hear concerns about are, well, I guess two things. One, about whether these synod events are just basically people sharing your opinions. It's a big Lebowski moment. That's just your opinion, man. (laughs) (laughs) And And that can be true. You know, we can put a bunch of different Catholics in a room together and everyone can share their opinion. How I think about how to weigh different opinions, how I think about other church teachings in the context of opinions, like the preferential option for the poor. How does that weigh in to the people I'm most attentive to and listening in a synodal Mm -hmm. church, right? I think that has to transfer in somehow. So it can have this feeling of it's just, you know, that's just everybody's opinions. And that's why, in my opinion, we need to think about synodality more as a way of life. Like we shouldn't just come together once every five years for these conversations. Parishes should be having these conversations all the time, should be praying Mm -hmm. together, discerning together all the time so that these conversations aren't coming out of nowhere. So one, some people think, well, that's just opinions and you can't can't rely on opinions. And this is true for the sense of the faithful as well. The sense of the faithful is not determined by an opinion poll. What's key to discerning in synodality 
is not that you've necessarily heard every opinion in the world as an opinion, Mm-hmm. but rather that you have had the spiritual openness to try to encounter the Holy Spirit in every single person. Okay. So it's less about trying to make judgments about, well, should I listen to you or you or you? And more about whether we have each done personally the spiritual work to discern the Spirit and the Spirit's call together. Okay. I think there's this perception of the sense of the faithful as how is that different from something like democracy, which is not the direction the church is going in terms of its organizational structure Mm -hmm. or public opinion polling, you know, like X percent of Catholics think this. And so we should take that as the way things are. I, for myself, sometimes have difficulty explaining even to fellow Catholics what they should understand by the sense of the faithful you know, as part of the magisterial reality of the church, mm-hmm. it has a role in a different way from the bishops, but as, you know, as part of the same sense of the church as a teacher. Mm-hmm. So what would be your, I don't know, your elevator pitch for <laughs> the census fidelium as a concept? If we take seriously that the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ through baptism, which is something I do think we should take very seriously, then in each and every one of the baptized, if we're just going to think within the church, we can talk about the Holy Spirit beyond the church, but if we're just thinking within the church, all those who are baptized have the opportunity to be mediators of the Holy Spirit. All the baptized are priest, prophet, and king. And that claim is not simply part of the church's mission as a whole to the larger world and building the kingdom of God. They have a claim on the attention. They have a form of authority within the church simply through baptism. And the census fidelium and trying to understand the sense of the faith of an individual person and then the sense of the faithful of a larger community is about taking that baptism seriously and nurturing it, trying to help people to grow in in faith and understanding and the practice of discipleship and in reflection. Because that is where the capital T of the tradition church lives and breathes. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, I think Catholics, and we use language like this. Some people use language like this. We talk about the deposit of faith Mm -hmm. as though there's this bank vault of the capital T tradition somewhere or a filing system where you need to go through and find the folder that deals with this particular issue and yank it out and there's your answer. Isn't it called Denzinger? That's yes, that is, that, is, that is called Denzinger. That's its other term. Yeah. yeah. But that's not how the church lives, right? The church lives in response to Christ and the Holy Spirit from its beginning. There's, there's never a file folder drawer. There's a person of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so if we're not willing to encounter that person of Jesus Christ and Christ's Spirit through the baptized, well, who should we be willing to encounter it through? So I think the sense of the faithful is, it's underplayed by thinking of it simply as a democratic vote. It takes more work than that. But my contention has been for a long time, and since back to that original ecclesiology class I had, where I got introduced to notions of the sense of the faithful and the Holy Spirit's work in the world, It's one thing to affirm the sense of the faithful, which Vatican II did, 
but it's a very another thing to say. And so how do we discern that? Mm-hmm. How do we really include that actively in the church and the understanding of a living tradition? And synodality is a way of, of saying, no, we believe what we've said about what baptism brings about in terms of the vocation of all the faithful and the opportunity of all the faithful in a variety of different ways to be teachers within the church of this tradition of who Jesus Christ is. Hmm. That was yeah, maybe my, a long elevator ride. I no. don't know. That's, we got stalled at a few different floors along the way. No, it's, it, it happens. People get on and off, you know. <laughs> my impression, and I haven't followed a lot of the synodality discussion as much as I probably should. But to be honest, it's not a question I get asked a lot about by students, either sure. my undergrad or graduate students. But I get this impression that uh, one of the underlying concerns is this sense that the church remains a bulwark of some kind against a fallen culture. Mm-hmm. And anytime that there's some shift, not even in, in particular teachings, but in, in just ways of doing things, that there's some kind of capitulation to that culture that we should be a bulwark against. Mm-hmm. And so if there is some structures of communication that are built up through the synod or as a result of the synod, and we have difficulty of seeing those as different from, you know, opinion polling, because we do tons of opinion polling about, you know, Catholics and what they think about this. And we hear regularly about these surveys that show that Catholics don't believe in the Eucharist, the real presence in the Eucharist. And that's done apart from any critical evaluation of the way the question is asked, which is what relentlessly irritates me about it, but that these are seen as, I don't know, determinative in some sense. And it, it frustrates me. It's it's like one of the things that I take very seriously from John Paul II's Veritatis Splendor is he talks about this idea of behavioral sciences and how they're not a normative source for moral theology is essentially his point. And so psychology can tell you why people do things. It doesn't tell you that those things are things they should do. I know that there's reasons to push back on on all that, but it's also how I feel about opinion polling. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't tell you what's right. It doesn't tell you what is true. And like democracy doesn't tell you what is actually the case. It's a method for decision-making in certain respects. And so in part because of John Paul's insistence on that, I'm actually like a little less, I'm not particularly concerned about the possible controversies that will arise out of the synod because I take seriously the belief in the Holy Spirit in the church. So I'm not super worried about is the synod going to lead us astray or something like that? But it's often, it it does seem built into this, like, oh, the church is capitulating to the culture. And I just, I don't know. I'm not sold. Well, I just think it's a, that's a way of looking at culture. And I'm thinking of Christ and culture right now, which I was just talking with some students about this past week. I think it under evaluates the significant role that culture has played in the church's traditions all the way along. And there I'm thinking, you know, lowercase t traditions that go along. And a lot of what we're trying to to figure out in a process of synodality is what is that capital T tradition that is essential, the Mm -hmm. word that must be spoken, that must be handed on. And what are cultural accretions that aren't necessarily bad, but don't have to be there in order for us to be faithful? And that takes yeah. a lot of work to figure out. That's not an easy yeah. thing. And I, I think that's another one of my worries with regard to the synod and the synod on synodality coming up at the level of the universal church is that 
whatever document comes forth from that, and it would be an apostolic letter because it's a, a synod of bishops, so that would result in an apostolic letter usually. I don't think Francis is going to conclude the conversation on anything. I mean, just given the way he's handled synods in the past, you can tell what he wants to underscore and what he's emphasizing for sure. But he generally is not trying to close off the conversation. Rather, he puts the conversation back to the local churches again. You know, think about this further. Think about these questions. Could you act differently in a pastoral way? What would that mean? That's part of this kind of ongoing cycle of journeying together. It's through that process that we're building the kingdom of God, that we're hopefully building the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. that we're coming closer to that kingdom. But you can't get closer to the kingdom without doing the work. You know, you have to take the steps to this labored analogy that I'm drawing out. You have to take the steps in order yeah. to keep trying to move forward to it. And so I don't want people to get precisely because it can sound too much like democracy. And well, I didn't vote for that. That's not what I said at my local synod. And I didn't Mm -hmm. see that reflected in the final document on whatever issue is close to us and that we're passionate about to think that, oh, so the synod is a failed thing if it Mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, result in the whatever for us is the right outcome. It's going to have to be a continued process of that humility and Parisia to keep thinking about things together. Yeah. You mentioned Fred Lawrence earlier and a thing he used to say a lot, and I think it was his version of an Oscar Wilde quote, but he would say, the problem with community is it takes a lot of nights. <laughs> and in, in a way, like, I feel like you could say the problem with synodality is it, it takes a lot of nights. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of Catholics who I feel like not saying this is good, but their relationship to the church is they maybe show up on Sunday mm-hmm. and they maybe it matters to them in some sense, but asking some kind of consistent regular involvement or some kind of higher level participation or some sense of, you know, responsibility for the yeah. church even yeah. might be an ask too far for some. And I've been in a lot of different parishes at this point in my life, some of which have that strong sense of communal responsibility, at least for the parish, and some of which are just they're, they're little Catholic rest stops for people <laughs> to show up when there's nothing else. So I'm curious to see how that kind of challenge goes too. It's same as like the problem of committee work, right? When you're on a committee and the people who are willing to do the work will do the work and take control and everyone else can sit back and do nothing, right? It's yes. the group project problem Yes, as well. I think know. we do, that has to be part of the formation for a more synodal church is helping people to understand from a young age, as well as, you know, for adults through adult faith formation, the responsibility, what's being asked of them. Because I think, especially in a very consumeristic culture, there's that feeling of, yeah, I go to the church to get what I need and then I walk away. And the church is not so much different than Target in that respect, Mm -hmm. right? Like if Target, you know, by some awful situation is not carrying what I need, I can't imagine that happening, but if Target (laughs) doesn't have it and I can't drop a bunch of money there, that I'm going to go someplace else. And it's hard to get past that consumeristic mentality. And it takes a lot of thinking about finding a church in which you can feel a church community, parish community, in which there's both challenge and acceptance too going on so that those relationships can be formed versus a church community that's, well, it's acceptable. Like you said, the rest stop Mm -hmm. is a gas station sandwich I picked up and, you know, that's good enough. It's not a great meal, but I'll just swing by. 
that's a different notion of church. And until, again, I think until we keep taking seriously that idea of what baptism is bringing about, and we really tell people what that is and help them to understand it, I think that's going to be a bit of an uphill climb. My students in my program, they come as first years from private schools and from public schools and different experiences of formation behind them all the way. But most of them don't have any sort of sense that baptism is asking something of them. Mm-hmm. Other than I'm supposed to be faithful. I mean, they get that. Yeah. But they don't get a larger sense of responsibility and purpose, that there's a vocation that flows from baptism. And yeah. I just think that's, it's too bad. It's sad. Something we have to work on. Yeah. Undersells yeah. our sacramental life. All right. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for recording with me today. Absolutely. Um, it was a treat. I appreciate this conversation. I will promote for you your book from 2016, A Ministry of Discernment. Thank you. I don't know if you have another one that you're working on. The next step that I'm working on is about privilege in the church and kenosis and how does Christ's self-emptying apply to communities where we recognize our privilege so we can empty ourselves in order to be vulnerable with others and to stand with others in vulnerability. Holy cow. All right. That's a whole other podcast. I know it's a terrible question, but what's the timeline on that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're a cruel man, Dr. (laughs) Oki. It's a new area of research for me, and I'm imagining that it's going to be, I'm not quite sure if it's a book yet or if it's several articles and then some popular pieces, because I would want something to come out that would be kind of like an examination of conscience for parish communities to use together along those lines. Yeah. So I'm thinking those will keep coming out over the next few years. I had a really nice conversation with Tom O'Meara, mm-hmm. who was nearby and so came on over to Loris to chat for a little while. And I was telling him about the project and he told me I shouldn't think too much like a systematic theologian who's trying to get it all figured out before I publish something. I just need to <laughs> dive in and make it happen, which is very Tom O'Meara advice, but it's also yeah. probably the advice I need. So I'm getting myself to dive in now. Great. Well, thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care, Steve. This episode of the Daily Theology Podcast was produced by Stephen Oki. The music for the podcast was created by Matt Hines of the band Eastern Sea. If you haven't already checked them out on Spotify, go do that next. Special thanks to our new venerable Patreon supporter, Paige Cargioli. If you'd like to become a Patreon, head to patreon.com slash dailytheopod. You can also support the show by leaving reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us at Daily Theopod on Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. Thanks, and see you soon.